The Theonauts, episode number 59. The one where we will try not to deceive, inveigle, or obfuscate anything. The Theonauts Podcast. Christian news from around the globe. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. It is the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the honor of kings is to search out a matter. Explore the vast reaches of God's word. Hello, all you Theonotheads out there. I'm David Gaddy, and I have in the studio with me today a good friend of mine, Brooke Perkins. Brooke, welcome to the show. Thank you, David. It's a blessing to be here. Yeah, so, you know, as we've been saying the past couple of weeks, Jeremiah's out. So the Theonauts have been uh, putting on their substitute teacher hats and coming into the studio. <laughs> and so I tortured Brooke enough to get him to come in. And My arm talk. still hurts. <laughs> so Brooke and I have a, a long history together, and uh, we're kind of like-minded. We... We're both kind of weird when it comes to Bible study. <laughs> weird is good. Yeah, and and we 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 both kind of think outside the box. So, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, Brooke, and uh, so the people kind of know who it is that they're that they're listening to and what they're in for. Well, uh, I live in Little Elm, Texas, and I've been there since 2006. Uh, my wife and I live there. Uh, no children. But uh, we just that gives us better opportunity to to help others uh, when we can. Don't need to find a babysitter and that kind of thing when we need to go uh, go out to someone in need. And uh, we just really uh, enjoy giving and just giving of ourselves to to others that have a need. Uh, uh, David and I, we uh, like you mentioned, we do go back quite a few years, but for different reasons we haven't become uh i guess jicks from proximity or whatever we haven't uh, had a chance to get together like we yeah really should but uh it, like before the show we were actually just talking and talking we were like hey we need to start recording some of this exactly <laughs> and we, we we it's easy to get lost in our own conversations but no i'm just really glad to uh be here uh, for my debut and just uh, <laughs> get to get to visit. Yeah, this well, this particular topic that we that we're going to be talking about is one that uh, is kind of one that has a history with us because we've we've talked you know just about every time we get together it seems like this topic kind of comes up somewhere <laughs> somehow. So uh, so I thought you know if we're going to talk about it on the show we might as well. You know, well, I'll be the first geek to geek out on it. <laughs> yeah, David, you you opened the door many years ago, and I, I really don't know when it was, but you opened the door uh, for me even entertaining the topic that that we're about to get into, and I, I really thank you for that because that. You know, I, I think I just put it back in the back of my mind, and <laughs> that's weird. David's weird. Just yeah, David's weird, and uh, he's just off. You know, but but hey, you know, it's okay. Uh, and I just set it back, and but that that planted the seed. 
Yeah. And I think it, it just took a little while to come to fruition, but uh, I'm really thankful that that you were on to that way back in those days. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just, uh, you know, I'm a sci-fi geek. And so this kind of hits those same buttons for me, I guess, you know. And, and uh, but, but anyway, before we get off into the topic, um, we do have a little bit of, of listener feedback that I'd like to, for us to, to, to jump into. Awesome. Whoops, that was a mess up. Okay, so yes, we do have voicemail. <laughs> And uh, so let's uh, listen to to what we got here. Theo Knights, it's your boy Brendan from over at SCC. I did want to uh, comment on the uh, God the Father episode. Excellent episode. And, and I love the attempt at uh, using using these humanly metaphors to better understand God. And I do agree that the that the father metaphor, the father imagery is is the best one. Uh and I and I, I kind of I kind of did the same boat as Jeremiah with uh Yeah, I mean it's 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 good to understand God as king. But it's it's deeper and it's more profound to understand God as father. Then again, you know, here I am, uh, you know, a good old American boy. I never, I was never raised under a king, so that that imagery may not work well enough for me because it's not a part of this culture. Another thing that's not a part of this culture is uh, this American culture is the the patron society, and you guys were jumping all around it. I, I was hoping you would get to it, but the idea of of God as a patron and like, like we would think a patron as in a business sense, as as one who provides for his clients, the one who are actually on the street level doing the work, because that's 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 also another important image. And I was uh, kind of hoping to get your feedback on that, under understanding God as a as a patron, because he, because we always say God provides, and he, of course He provides as King, He provides as a Father, and. I don't know. I just I can't help but think that maybe the best way to understand God from an American standpoint is is a business standpoint, uh, because we're all about corporations and we're all about finding that patron that can provide our uh, utensils for us, so we can actually do the work that He gives us to do. I uh, love to hear your thoughts, but more than that, I love you guys. Thanks. Bye bye. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Brendan. Uh, that was Brendan Taylor from Finding Christ in Cinema. I was kind of filling uh, Brooke in before the show about our affiliation with the with the Great Commission Transmission Network. And uh, so, yeah, Brendan calls in every now and then and, and chats about the, the shows. And the uh, obviously the show that he was referring to was a couple of episodes ago where Jeremiah and I talked about uh, God the Father. And the, on Father's Day, we were thinking, okay, well, who's the best father that there is? And it's God. And so and I think, uh, you know, a lot of things we touched on in that episode was that our relationship with God is often seen as a master-servant relationship, which it is to some degree. But we get so hung up on thinking that way that we don't think of him being a father and relationship. And, and that's a big, huge part of it. 
So it is. Anyway, I, I, I uh, thanks for your comments, Brendan. Uh, I have not thought about that patron deal. Uh, have you ever uh, thought of God in, ter- in terms of, um, of, of a patron type of relationship that, that Brendan was talking about? Is it patron in the sense of overseer or guide? Or, or provider. Or I think provider. it was provider what he, what he was kind of getting at. Yes. And that is throughout the Old Testament mm-hmm. with the journeys of the Israelites. It is throughout that he is continually the provider. You know, just in the journey in the wilderness, mm-hmm. those 40 years. He was continually providing the things Sometimes that they needed. Sometimes more so than they wanted. Yeah, they didn't appreciate <laughs> where right. he was coming from, but he was saying, I'm giving you what you need, mm-hmm. and you will be okay. You just need to trust me. Right. They didn't. And they wanted to you know, go back to the flesh pots of Egypt. and Yes, and that's part of the whole father-son thing, too, when you really think about it, because a father provides... And sometimes he doesn't provide when you think he should, you know. But that's for your own good, and he's he's teaching something okay. out of that. Mm-hmm. And um, but you know, as he's talking about in terms of maybe a corporation, that seeing God as the one that that is the provider of the things that you you know you intend to purchase or whatever. Um, I just had never really thought about it in those terms. Not really. Um, but. It's interesting. I definitely want to look into that. Now, one thing I will say about uh, thinking of things from a capitalistic standpoint or from a uh, from a standpoint of, of a corporation mm-hmm. is that is how I was first able to get my head around Trinity, the whole na- uh, na- nature of Trinity and God being three and one okay. all together. Because if you think about a, a, a board of directors – of a, of a major corporation It is multiple But it's singular At the same time You know The board mm-hmm. is responsible For all these different things I And mean, there's different Members of the board Who then Have their own Individual responsibilities But they contribute Largely to the To the oversight Of the entire company And I kind of see that You know In okay. God the Father God the Son God the Spirit That You know It's kind of like A CEO A CFO Mm-hmm. And a COO, you know, you've got yeah. this. The chief executive officer is like God; he's kind of the one calling all the shots, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, of course, the son would be kind of like the chief operating officer. He's the one that is making sure everything is going according to the plan that the CEO has put into place. And okay. then, what's the chief financial officer's job is to provide. The funds and the and the, the assets that are necessary for the for the functioning of the business, and mm-hmm. that's what the spirit kind of does for us as he provides, you know, that sort of uh, thing. Yeah, and it brings to mind Romans eight when it talks about you know the we don't know how to pray as we ought, but the spirit knows our infirmities or knows our weaknesses, and he you know utters to God mm-hmm. those things that we can't adequately know what we really need right right. it's like that back channel of that communication that's there that just as a a young child to their parent their parent may know what the child really needs but the child may not know how to ask you know in the right way you know they're they're they may be 
going around the issue. And so <laughs> we don't know how we really need to be changed or fixed or healed, but God knows. Mm-hmm. And so the Spirit works with our spirit to make those, you know, that communication possible. Right. To give guidance and, to, mm-hmm. and direction and stuff like that. So. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that's awesome, uh, Brandon. Thanks for for chiming in and, and make sure you yeah, uh, real good. you uh, keep it up and because uh, we'd love to hear from you again. Anyway, I thought I'd throw that in there uh, for our our major topic that we're going to be talking about. So um, the this this topic is, I guess, we're going to talk about giants, really, but I, but it's really deeper than that. And much deeper, yeah. So we're going to be talking about all kinds of mysterious things uh, of the in the Bible, and and in text also that are supported by the Bible. The Bible makes reference to some of these uh, uh, books. It quotes some of these books. And um, so they're not necessarily holy text, but they are supporting documents that the ancient Jews actually, you know, held in high uh, esteem. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so if you have a lot of questions about some of the stories that were happening in Genesis, especially in several others, you can reference some of these other books and see, okay, what are some of the other stories that the Jews were telling around this? What what other writings did they have historically backing up, you know, the text of the actual Holy Word? And it fills in a lot of gaps, so to speak, because Scripture oftentimes is so concise. Mm-hmm. And it just gets to the heart of the matter of an action that God commanded or whoever. It was, it, you know, the action is there, but the supporting, the fill-in human aspect of that is sometimes uh, not given to us in, in Scripture. Right. So it's, it's sometimes difficult for us to understand exactly what happened. Uh, it may give us a very short little... Uh, concise because it's not important to maybe the topic at hand, but it's not mentioned in passing. And then, but then some of these other texts might actually expound on it. And what's interesting is they agree that I mean they're not like contradictory in their. Uh, they agree with the Bible and they agree with one another uh, in the the events that happened in uh, these stories that we're going to be talking about. But a lot of people would consider this stuff mystical or way out there, or whatever, and hence the X-Files theme, you know, and, and uh, you, you know, if, if any of you guys are a fan of the X-Files, like, like I, <laughs> like I was, uh, you know, that, that initial idea that uh, the, the conspiracy is that everyone's out to deceive and veigle or obfuscate something in order to, uh, <laughs> to reach their goals, and, uh, and we are not trying to do that, we're trying to make sure that that what we're talking about is uh, is something that is legitimately can help us in our understanding of the past and even give us some insight into what lies in store, you know, in the because future. Because we may, and 
I'll leave it at that. We may get to see some of this come back at some point. Right. Can't prove it until it happens, <laughs> but but you never know. And and so if we're if we are completely unacquainted with this area of study, then if we witness some of these events that perhaps may show up in the future, where will we be mentally? Mm, right. Yeah. Cause, and, then, and that's a great point. We're, we're told to be prepared and to watch. Uh, you know, how many times does Jesus tell us you know, that, to be watchful and to, to, uh, to look for, for things? And this, is, and this can equip us to do that. I will state a disclaimer right off the bat that we don't necessarily know what we're talking about. So I mean, absolutely not. The, we, it, <laughs> this is this is not. Oh, hey, I heard it on the Theonauts, so it's got to be true. <laughs> oh, no. And of course, Jeremiah and I have both told you that many times before. That uh, our goal here is to just inform and to maybe bring up some things maybe you haven't ever really thought about before, or maybe you've heard of a little bit or thought about a little bit, but thought, nah, it's a little too out there for me. Um, and so, you know, was it? Um, you know, the, the whole Acts 17 Berea thing is, is a mantra that you should always keep in the back of your mind when listening to our podcast or any other is that, you know, study this for yourself to see if, if it is, is true or not. You may come to a completely different understanding about this than, um, than we do. But uh, there are a lot of resources out there that we've, we've drawn stuff from. Uh, but... You know, I, I think it's probably good for us to start in probably the first place it pops up for most of us, which is Genesis, the sixth chapter. Um, and and look what it says there uh, in the first four verses. Um, so, Do you have I do. it pulled up? Can you read mm-hmm. that for us then? So this is Genesis chapter six and verse one. Uh, begins when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to the to them the sons of god saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose then the lord said my spirit shall not abide in man forever for he is flesh his days shall be a hundred and twenty years the nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the mighty, the men of renown. So, um, this has always been a kind of a cryptic text, and it's debated an awful lot. Um, so, one of the, one of the things that, that comes up is, who are the sons of God? Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I guess one of the traditional, like I kind of uh, often heard that this is nothing more than sons of God were the line of Seth. This is just the good guys, Mm -hmm. the the sons of God. And the daughters of men obviously would just be um, the women. So um, what makes us think that it's any different than that? Well, it, it takes uh, doing a little deeper research into the actual words that are used in the original because that starts delineating what we're actually talking about. 
And the translation that I read from actually uses the word Nephilim instead of the... Which is untranslated, right? Yes, yes. And it, it's uh, the word giants. And, uh, you know, if you do even some initial digging into what those words actually are, you quickly will find that giants doesn't mean just big people. Yes, they were large beings, but that's not what the word mean, right. uh, means or meant. Nephilim, right. Yes. Yeah, and, and of course, you guys are, are somewhat familiar with our discussions of this before. We talked to Brian Gadawa and his book and, and all that sort of thing, and, and all these, these stories of the Nephilim are in there. And I guess one of the things that pops in my mind is because those are in there, like let's even look at the King James. If we're just going King James and it says giants, how exactly does do giants get produced by the simple mating between men of God and women of men? Well, if you begin to entertain the idea that sons of God and that term in the original is Benaha Elohim. If you do a word, even a quick word search on that, you will see that that always refers to direct, direct creations of God. Mm. That term is found in Job a couple of times. And clearly the account when it says that the sons of God came before God, uh, and he essentially paraphrasing, of course, but he asked, you know, where you've been? And he, they said, well, we're, you know, walking to and fro on the earth. Uh, clearly that is a reference to angels. Correct. It yeah. has nothing to do with human beings. Uh, that term is found also in the Greek uh, New Testament, uh, where the Christian becomes a child of God, you know, in a in a spiritual sense, we are direct creations of God in a spiritual sense because we are new creations, right. new creatures in God's uh, uh, development, and uh, so it always refers to direct creations of God, and and to to use the context of that. Uh, and say, oh, no, but in this particular passage, it refers to, you know, sons of Seth, has no basis. Yeah. It's almost like we do that because the other thing scares us. You know, we think, uh, you know, well, it can't mean that. This is too weird. You know, angels coming down and uh, having their way with women and creating these giants. That's just too far out there. I can't go there with you. And so it seems like people, because they're so opposed to the, the idea of that, then it starts to become, let's rationalize this. How can we make the text where it doesn't actually say that? And I think that's where why you get these. And apparently Augustine was of that mindset because he was so influential in the early church there in the 4th and 5th century that he, his influence dominated uh, the theosophy mm -hmm. of that time frame, and we are descendants 
of that mindset. Correct. Right. And and so, but it wasn't always so. Like even the ancient Jews did not believe that. The the early Christians did not believe that. Uh, you can read in the writings of the what we now call the Nicene Fathers and the Antonicene Fathers. You can read what they believed on this on this topic. Uh, they actually believed that, and the Jews as well, that um, that demons, as as mentioned in the New Testament, uh, were the disembodied souls of these Nephilim, who had no place to go. And actually, some of these extra biblical texts that we were talking about refer to why that is. And uh, uh, I've got a couple of these here, and and we're going to read a little bit from them just to kind of give us uh, an idea of, of, of how they read and that sort of thing. I've got the book of Jubilees uh, here, and I want to look in uh, chapter 5, verse 2. It says, and lawlessness, this is talking about the same thing that was happening in Genesis 6. It says, and lawlessness increased on the earth, and all flesh corrupted its way, alike men and cattle and beasts and birds and everything that walks on the earth. All of them corrupted their ways and their orders, and they began to devour one another. And I'm kind of getting ahead of myself because that's where I kind of wanted to go on the whole hybrids thing. But I'm going to flip over and look at another one of um, these books, the book of Enoch. Uh the book of Enoch was truly a lost book because uh, it's it's quoted by Jude. In the in the book of Jude, actually quotes directly word for word out of it. Uh, however, the, the the most manuscripts were completely lost until it was discovered in Ethiopia, um, and 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 so you, you start looking through this, and it's got some really fascinating stuff. Some of it is poetic, and and so. It's kind of hard to to tie down what's his, history and what's you know poetry and but it does address some of these issues pretty plainly. Um, chapter seven of the book of Enoch says it happened after the sons of men had multiplied in those days that daughters were born to them elegant and beautiful, and when the angels, the sons of heaven, beheld them, they became enamored of them, saying to each other, "Come." Let us select for ourselves wives from the progeny of men, and let us beget children. Then their leader, Samyaza, said to them, I fear that you may perhaps be indisposed to performance of this enterprise, and that I alone shall suffer for the grievance of such, oh, for such a grievous crime. But they answered him and said, We all swear and bind ourselves by mutual excretions that we will not change our intention but execute our projected undertaking hmm. then they swore all together and all bound themselves by mutual excretions their whole number was 200 who descended upon Ardis, which is the top of mount hermon mm -hmm. that mountain therefore it was called hermon because they had sworn upon it and bound themselves by mutual excretions and of course then it goes on to to name all the leaders of these angels um, they were in bands of ten, uh, something like yeah, that. Yeah, uh, something like that. And it says um, they took wives, each choosing for himself, whom they began to approach, and with whom they cohabited, teaching them sorcery, 
incantations and dividing of roots and trees, and women conceived brought forth giants whose stature each was 300 cubits. These devoured all which the labor of men produced until it became impossible to feed them. And when they turned themselves against men, when they turned themselves against men in order to devour them and began to injure birds, beasts, reptiles, fish, and to eat their flesh one after another and to drink their blood. And the earth reproved the unrighteous. So wow. uh, this is, once again, real mystical sounding stuff, if it's the first time you've heard it. Um, but it, it's, it's intriguing that... Um, there are passages in the New Testament that make reference to the rest of the story. Uh, in the, according to the story, Enoch is given charge to witness to them and to try and turn them, and that doesn't work. And um, more, he's essentially in the Book of Enoch acts as their lawyer. Yes, yes, he's like their their defense lawyer. <laughs> mm-hmm. And because uh, they know they don't have a clue don't have a help anywhere unless it's Enoch. <laughs> right. And what do we know about Enoch in, in the scriptures? Very little. It says that that uh, he didn't die because God took him. Uh, so he was raptured, taken into heaven, however you want to say it, mm-hmm. off of the earth without dying. And uh, some of these these passages in these other books give us a clue as to what actually was going on during all that. I think so. Um, and so, you know, the, you're dealing with this issue of these, these giants on trial, and, I mean, these, these uh, angels on trial, and what ends up happening is other angels are sent to earth to bind them and, bind, and bound them into the bottomless pit, which is, off, which is referenced by... Um, Jude. J- yes, Jude actually S- talks about it. Second Peter talks about that, I believe. Yeah, and... Um, uh, do you have it pulled up there? I do. So in Jude, if I can find the verse here. All right. I thought I did. <laughs> well, paraphrasing, so the, the angels which sinned, the Lord reserved in chains, maybe the Peter. Yeah. Maybe the Peter here. Yeah, uh, um, Jude is the one that says that the angels left their first estate, craving after uh, strange flesh. Yes, yes. Um, well, and the question that came to my mind, what happened? What happened that these... Angels, whatever they did, it must have been something very egregious. Right. Because they apparently had their own place set in the eternal state of damnation. And whatever it was they did was so abhorrent to God that he made a special place for them. Mm. And that got me to thinking, ah, what about Genesis chapter 6? And that Jesus would make a reference to the days of Noah and say, just as it was as in the days of Noah, so shall it also be when the Son of Man comes. 
why would Jesus, out of everything he could have mentioned, reference Noah? Right. So what was going on in the days of Noah? And Peter seems to be obsessed with Noah, too. Like in the, in the books of Peter, he, t- he keeps talking about Noah. He talks about Noah in reference to baptism, about the, the, the water. And he talks about, uh, in the previous chapter, he talks about Noah again. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, even whenever he's talking about one day as of a thousand years. I mean, that, in that context, he's talking about Noah. And, uh, it, and then he, he's the one who also mentions that the, cha- that the angels, that he spared not the angels, but they're chained to everlasting darkness. And, and um, he actually uses the word that's translated a lot of times as hell. But the word is in the Greek, Tartarus, which has, that's the only place in the, in the Bible it's mentioned. And we don't have a lot of good references for what Tartarus means unless you go into Greek mythology. Mm-hmm. You go into Greek mythology and you start finding out that Tartarus was the bottomless pit, the great abyss. And then we flip over into the, to this book of Enoch, and what do we read? The angels were chained and thrown into the bottomless pit. Uh, I've even heard <laughs> uh, one person was 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 conjuring where on earth is a bottomless pit in the in the core because once you once you hit the core you can't you, you have nowhere to go but up so there's no bottom yes when you're in the core and uh, so that really <clears throat> kind of uh, to me links in with these extra-biblical texts that we're reading from on their punishment, they were confined to the realm below ground level, wherever that is, deep in the earth. Right. Where the rocks were on top, you know, somehow, not that the physical rocks could, you know, keep them bound, but they were bound in another realm, Mm -hmm. if you will, I think, or I, I have the opinion. They were bound in the realm... But that is geographically would be in the center of the earth mm-hmm. somehow, and so anyway, it's 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 all really fascinating things. And besides the giants, there, there's all kinds of other weird things that uh, that come into play here. Some of it just seems to be barely mentioned, but still uh, still worth acknowledging a little bit. There's hints given throughout Scripture. Uh, that, you know, just a piece of it, really, because, you know, perhaps in God's wisdom, he chose not to tell us the full extent. But knowing these texts were around when the books uh, originally were written back in, you know, uh, Exodus, Deuteronomy. Right. These books were around kings, you know, and it references, you know, are these things not written in... uh, in Jasher, yeah, so to speak. Right. Yeah, and that is as specifically Jasher is mentioned uh, twice in the Old Testament. It's mentioned in Joshua 10 and verse 13. It says, "Is not this written in the book of Jasher?" Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, it's later in Second Samuel uh, 1 verse 18. It says, "Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher." Uh, also, the book of Jubilees is mentioned by name. In scripture, so apparently um, they were highly regarded. Yes, and it doesn't mean that they're um, that they're holy scripture, right. but we we got to get to the point where we're also realizing that it doesn't have to be holy scripture to be apt to be true. I mean, there are a lot of books that are written today that are absolutely true, 
they're not holy scripture. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I mean, do you believe? Maybe you shouldn't believe all the history books, but <laughs> <laughs> but but you know, on the whole, when we pick up a history book, we assume that what we're reading in there is true. It's not holy scripture. It's not right. divinely inspired by the word, you know, by God. But it adds to our understanding. But yeah, it gives us a historical background to something that maybe, like for example, we read the history of Rome. Mm-hmm. By historians, by Josephus. Josephus isn't Holy Scripture, mm-hmm. but we trust him as a historian that what he wrote is going to be accurate. And Josephus writes accurate. about these things that we're talking yes, about. Yes, he does. <laughs> he does actually. Uh, so let's talk about. Uh, let's get a little weirder, as if we haven't gotten weird enough. Um, you mean we're not to the bottom? <laughs> <laughs> of course not. Okay, let's go to to Second Samuel. And I want to look there in verse 23. And by the way, um, it, we, we've been reading from the, the ESV today. Um, 2 Samuel 23, verse 20. Um, it says, maybe I should read this in the King James because it reads better in the King James after I said that. So, um, Well, I'll read it in the ESV first. It says, uh, and, ben- and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was a valiant man of Kabziel, a doer of great deeds. He struck down two aerials of Moab, but he, also, but he also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. So in giving us the great uh, feats of this man, uh, we find out that he was a doer of great deeds, and he struck down two aerials. <laughs> okay, what is that? Almost every translation you pick up will render that differently. It's a hard to translate um, a word. The footnote that I have is the meaning of the word Ariel is unknown. <laughs> of course it is. <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> it's translated so many ways. But obviously whatever this thing was that he killed was uh, a great thing because it compares because it also mentions in the same breath about him slaying lions. Well, in, it's interesting to note that somehow um, the King James translators uh, decided this would be a good wording. Hmm. It said, um, he was a valiant man of Kabziel who had done many acts. He slew two lion-like men of Moab, and he went down also and slew a lion in the midst of the pit. Hmm. So, um, so it mentions a lion-like man. Um, and th- there are uh, many things throughout history that, um, that, that kind of make us wonder. Even modern day uh, cryptids, crypt- cryptozoological um, uh, things that, that pop up here and there. You got Bigfoot, Sasquatch, you know, the, the Yeti. The Shadow Man. The Shadow Man, yeah, or Slender Man. <laughs> and uh, it just seems like there's all these, the Mothman. You've got all these weird... Mermaids. Weird things. And, and I actually saw a really interesting thing on mermaids one time that was really compelling. I was kind of, whoa. But uh, so anyways, it seems like it has been... Man has been fascinated with hybrid animals, human, animal-human hybrids. Um, Where could that have come from? Yeah. It's like it's really strange. Are we the first ones to dream this up? You know, Um but even in like uh, Greek mythology, uh, you see it everywhere. You see, um, 
you see uh, uh, minotaurs. Mm-hmm. A, a minotaur is a half man, half bull. Uh, you've got centaurs, which are part man, part horse. Uh, satyrs or fawns, which are uh, part goat. Uh, pan is one mm-hmm. of these. And, and and you've got in the Egyptian culture, you've got Horus, Anubis. Horus is a god with uh, man's body and the head of a, of a uh, hawk, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you have Anubis which is the head of a jackal, mm-hmm. um, Amit, which is the, the head of a crocodile. Okay. So you have all these, these Egyptian gods seem to have this mixed animal thing going on. Um, so could there be a common theme in all of this? It kind of sounds like it, doesn't it? I it mean, does. even across the world in India, what we have happening over there, we've got the gods of Narishima, which is part lion, part man. Hmm. You've got... Uh, Ganesha, part elephant, part man. Um, and you see this in the Chinese culture. You see it everywhere. There just seems to be a lot of this that that has happened. That, and they're deified. Yes. And that's one of the things that, that is very intriguing about all so this. So what's special about these creatures? Well, um, one of the passages that, that I read just a few minutes ago had talked about God being upset with uh, not only man, but also with beast. Uh, I'm going to read that again. It was in uh, Jubilees. It says, All flesh corrupted its way, alike men and cattle and beasts and birds and everything that walketh on the earth. All of them corrupted their ways and their orders, and they began to devour each other. Um, this concept of them corrupting their orders um, has to do with genealogy. Their genealogy was corrupted. Okay. Mm-hmm. And um, so if we jump over into Jasher, chapter 4, I thought this was kind of interesting. This is pre-flood also. It says, uh, And every man made unto himself a god, and they robbed and plundered every man his neighbor as well as his relative, and they corrupted the earth, and the earth was filled with violence. And their judges and rulers went to the daughters of men and took their wives by force from their husbands according to their choice. And the sons of men in those days took the cattle of the earth, the beasts of the field, and the fowls of the air, and taught the mixture of animals with one species with the other in order therewith to provoke the Lord. And God saw the whole earth, and it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted its way upon the earth, all men and all animals." Wow. So, um, so there's something strange going on in this corruption of animals. And I think about some of the weird stuff that's happening today. You have all, there are people out there trying to hybridize man with other things. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have uh, hybrids between, uh, that are attempted between man and pigs and... Uh, <laughs> And so even man and technology, and which is really scary when you think about it. You started getting into all kinds of sentient computers and, mm-hmm. and this sort of thing. And, and I've even heard people saying, you know, you, you were Michio Kaku. I don't know if you've heard of him. The name he, he's, rings a bell. He's a, 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 a Japanese scientist who, uh, very renowned, uh, 
writes all kinds of really interesting uh, studies on on physics and and whatnot. Mm -hmm. He was even quoted saying that uh, if computers become sentient, the best course of action of mankind would be to join ourselves with them, mm-hmm. to make ourselves hybrid with them. Otherwise, we'll be seen as ants in a future of machines. Uh, so anyway, who knows? Mm-hmm. But uh, there's all kinds of weird stuff going on, and this could very well tie into some of the legends and and things of that nature mm-hmm. that have popped up concerning half-man half animals and Gadawa actually did this really well in his in his book um dealing with uh the the watchers at that time in the story mm-hmm. were uh using these things as armies to provoke god and to also do their bidding so they had scorpion men and they had all these other things which kind of Reminded me of Revel- of the Revelation. Uh, whenever the Revelation starts talking about things coming out of the pit, and they had the faces of a man, and the body of a scorpion, mm-hmm. and or the tail of a scorpion, and they flew. Yes. <laughs> now this could all be symbolic, but it, but it could it could be something more literal than what we had thought. <laughs> we, uh, I think, oftentimes we tend to symbolize Revelation much more than than God. I think, perhaps intended. Mm-hmm. Some of this may be a lot more literal than we, some of us may have given it credit for. Yeah. So anyway, just some, just some more weird stuff out there. Um, one thing that I wanted to look at too is, um, uh, oh yeah, the the the. Size of giants, mm-hmm. right? So th- there are several things in the, in the scriptures that talk about, uh, or t- I say scriptures, uh, some of these ancient texts. It's three hundred cubits. Mm-hmm. That's absolutely you know huge. Um, I don't know how that I haven't equated that, but you know some of these early, the first offspring, uh, if we give that you know credit, uh, if that's what actually took place. Uh, Whatever the cubit came out to be, it apparently is the early offspring of this uh, mating between human women and angelic uh, or demonic uh, inception. They were they were apparently were the really large ones, right? And then perhaps you know there were different strains and different uh, kinds of giants and then they you know some were smaller and we've you know they've even in this own country in texas and oklahoma and uh you can find evidence that you know we have dug up skeletons that were seven eight you know nine feet tall yeah 18 feet i've seen records of that but Uh, once the uh smithsonian is contacted. They come in. <laughs> they kind of disappear. Oh, yes. Well, we were, we'd love to come out and see what you've uh, dug up, and then they cart it away, and it's never seen again. Right. Well, there is records of in the 1500s, 1600s, of skeletons found as tall as 18 foot. Okay. And it, it's like, okay, but obviously that was prior to photography, and so who knows what happened to them. Mm-hmm. But uh, 
But yeah, there are passages that talk about them being as uh, cedars, and we'll actually get to some of those here in a second. Uh, yeah, Amos chapter 2 goes into that. Because one of the things that, um, that, the, that, that comes up is, did all these things die in a flood? Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. obviously, the scriptures say everything died in the flood except for Noah and his family. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what did he mean whenever he said there in Genesis six that there were Nephilim on the earth in those days and also afterward? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, so, afterward could be after the flood. I know some scholars believe it means after the specific time that it happened, which could have still been prior to the flood. Mm-hmm. But um, then we read all these scriptures about guys like Goliath and Og of Bashan. Where did they come from? And, and these, these, huge, these huge people. And it's like, yeah, where did they come from? And um, there are some people that believe in a, a, what do you call it, a second incursion. Second incursion. Where maybe this happened more than once. The thing is we have no, no textual evidence of that, even in an extra-biblical form. mm um, Not that I found. Yeah. So, um, but there are interesting other things. You know, you and I were talking before the show about uh, Noah uh, choosing the wives of his sons. Mm-hmm. And um, what, what was it? That, that it you... was only about uh, two weeks. And it may be in the book of Jasher Prob- or Jubilee. Probably it, Jasher. Probably Jasher. I think Jasher does talk quite a bit about the... Um, about that time frame. And it mentions that it was only a matter of maybe two or three weeks before the flood came is when Noah chose the wives for his three sons. Okay. Why, you know, apparently it, it indicates that they were the best that he could find. Yeah, so they, he was in, it was in short order. He knew he had to populate the earth. But what was wrong <laughs> with their genetics, uh, you know, it w- there was something that wasn't right. If Noah and his sons and Noah's wife were the only ones left that had not corrupted or had their genetics corrupted, uh, Genesis 6 says, you know, Noah was perfect in his generations. That word perfect has to do with a physical blemish mm-hmm. is what that ro- word refers to. And the word generations really is the word genealogy. He was not blemished in his genetics. Right. Is what is indicated in the even in the uh, King James text. Uh, and so apparently the wives that Noah chose for his three sons had some type of blemish. Right, because uh, we don't we don't know exactly. It looks like um, that there may have been a corruption in at least in the wife of Ham, especially. Right. And so you might think, well, y'all are just making all this up. Where, <laughs> where are you getting all this? Well, uh, actually, I believe the Bible is not vague in, or it's, it's not ambiguous. It doesn't just throw things out there just to be throwing things out there. If it gives you a name, there's a reason for the name. If it gives you a number, there's a reason for the number. Uh, anytime you see a name or a number or whatever and you're interested, do a little research and see, okay, why would the scriptures tell me that there was 152 fish in that net? <laughs> why would the scriptures tell me that uh, 
that that the ark came to rest on the seventeenth day of the second month. Okay, so there are important reasons why, and if you're a listener to the show, you've probably you caught that because <laughs> we talked about that earlier. But there are reasons why this stuff is in there, and so Genesis ten, Genesis ten is a lineage. So when you're reading it in your daily readings and you come across Genesis 10, you typically are just going to skim through it really fast because it's nothing but a list of names and who begat who and et cetera, et cetera. But there are some, there are some nuggets of information that we can pull out of that that are kind of leading us to, to say the things that we're saying concerning Ham and his wife and this sort of thing. Um. First off, let's look at um, uh, Deuteronomy, the seventh chapter. Um, this is one of those passages that people are going to throw at us uh, as Christians um, because it really offends people. Mm-hmm. Um, Deuteronomy 7, in, in beginning of verse 1, In the ESV, it says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Pezzites, the Havites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives gives them over to you, you defeat them. Then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. Okay, this is one of those passages where... God is telling his people, I want you to destroy all these guys. I, I don't want you to leave any remnant of them. And, and when we get into those specific situations, when they pop up, he reiterates this. I want you to kill the, the, everyone, the, the children, the animals, you know, the livestock, everything goes. And, people, and not only that, he said in verse 5, but thus you shall deal with them. This is how you're going to do it, guys. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. Right. So there's something going on here with these, with, with this, these people that he's talking about. There is a reason why he wants them wiped off of the earth. And it's not necessarily in the fact that he is a vengeful god. Uh it is it, there is something else going on, and the scripture gives us all the answers. There's a list of people here. There's a list of names. There's there are seven ites listed here uh, that he tells you, you're going to encounter these people, and these people are the ones that I need you to completely annihilate. Um, so you can use the scriptures and all these genealogies that bore us to death you can go through and find out who are these Amorites? Who are these Hittites? Who are uh, all of these, these people that he's saying completely wipe out? They all have to go back to Noah. Okay. Because that's where everything was wiped out, but Noah and his family. So they all have to be traced back there 
somehow. Genesis 10 is one place that tells us. Uh, Genesis 10 verse uh, 6 says the sons of Ham were Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. And the sons of Cush were Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, and Sabdakah. The sons of Ramah were Sheba and Dadan. Cush fathered Nimrod, and we'll get to him a little bit more. He was the first man on the earth to be a mighty man, and he was mighty, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Okay, so I'm going to go ahead and stop there. What we were talking about is Cush, Ham, and Cush. Um, Ham had four sons that are mentioned. I'm sure that he probably had more than that. But there are four that are, that are specifically mentioned. Now, if we start tracing back, we start finding out that, um, that these one of the names here is Mizraim. That's one of uh, uh, Ham's sons, Mizraim. Mizraim was the father of someone named Captor. If we go to Amos 9 and verse 7, it says, Are you not like the Cushites to me? O people of Israel, declares the Lord, did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Captor and the Syrians from Ker? So the Philistines are these descendants of Captor. And if we do a little bit more research, we start to find out that, the, that they also came from the Isle of Crete. Okay. That, that's, that, that's where they were. Okay. So, um, well, let's think about this for a minute. We know one Philistine who's really famous. Hmm. Could it be <laughs> someone connected with David? <laughs> Good old Goliath, right? He, what was Goliath? He was a giant. And he, and he was a Philistine. And from some things I've read, he was a runt <laughs> compared to his other brothers. Right. And some of that, well, yeah, because he had uh, at least f uh, four other brothers that we mm -hmm. know of. And uh, so, so anyway, you've got this this going on. Uh, Crete. There's interesting things about Crete. Also, Crete is the source of Greek mythology, especially dealing with demigods and titans. What are those? <laughs> demigods are half god, half man. So they're the offspring of gods mating with women of the earth. Hmm. So you ever hear of Zeus? And Zeus fathered um, Hercules. Hercules would have been a demigod, a titan, would have been um, one of these mighty men of valor <laughs> that mm -hmm. we just got through reading about. Mm -hmm. Okay, so they all, they're coming from this land, mm -hmm. uh, uh, which is... Uh, where the Philistines were, and, and several of these others. Okay, so we and we know that there are giants in that land. Mm -hmm. um, also, Amos uh, two, verse nine tells us, "Yet it it was I who destroyed the Amorite before you, whose height was like the height of cedars, and who was as strong as the oak, and I destroyed his fruit above his roots beneath." Okay, so an Amorites. It says they were as tall as cedars. That's pretty big. <laughs> well, the cedars of Lebanon were very 
famous for how big they were and how strong they were. And um, <clears throat> so it, this, I'm sure that this was in reference uh, to that. We actually can read about some Amorites who were big, uh, aside from that generality that Amos gave us. In Deuteronomy 4, verse 45 through 47, we read about a guy by the name of Og of Bashan. And it doesn't specifically tell us his height, but it tells us the height of his bed, the length of his bed, and the length of the, uh, the sepulcher they put him in. And it was like over 13, 14 foot. And that's if we take the cubit on the small end. Yes. If we take the cubit for 25 inches, uh, then his bed alone was over 18 feet long. And so he was almost that tall mm. if we take the cubit at 25 inches. Yeah. And a gentleman by the name of Douglas Hemp goes even further in describing what someone like Agabashan would have been able to do. And so he states that Og would have weighed about 3,125 pounds wow. in his book, Corrupting the Image. And he paints this really good word picture that I want to share right quick. He okay. said, considering that King Og was a warrior, we can presume that he could have at least lifted the equivalent of his own body weight. He would have been able to lift two war horses at about 1,500 pounds each at once with its rider and throw it. In modern terms, he could have lifted a mid-sized car. Wow. And he goes on to calculate how many calories he would have been able to eat. And this is kind of short, but I'll, I'll read it right quick. It says, if we use the more conservative uh, weight calculation, then he would have needed to consume at least 22,657 calories per day just to stay alive as per the basal metabolic rate, which calculates, based on a person's height and weight, how many calories they need to live if they are not doing any significant work per day. So, in modern terms, Hemp speculates that Og probably would have had to eat more than 30 pizzas <laughs> or 150 cheeseburgers per day in order to get the needed calories to maintain the lifestyle of a warrior. Wow. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. It, it, it just boggles the mind whenever you really stop and think about it. And, and I know this stuff just sounds so far out there, but it, it's really not that far of a reach. It's only that far of a reach because of our traditional mindsets and our limited scope of, of history of what we have to see. Mm -hmm. um, but, man, this stuff is, is, is like, okay, so... These these weren't the only ones. I mean, it, the Bible is full of this stuff. Um, whenever you really start looking at it, uh, you had uh, Agabashan was defeated mm -hmm. by Moses and the children of Israel. What? It's like did you know, we think about David and Goliath and Goliath being a giant? But man, this was like a war between Israelites and giants up near Mount. Where were they? Hermon. Near Mount Hermon, which is exactly where the book of Enoch told us they landed. Yes. And that's where, uh, or where the angels came down. And, and not only, I think, were they just big guys and women, because there were females also. You know, you look down in Peru. They found a lot of red-haired mummies mm. down there, and their skulls are clearly not human, because they've done some 
research on that, and they they are not human. You, any way you stretch that, they're Correct. they're not just you know <clears throat> coneheads do have some kind of uh, validity to that. But well, getting back, do bound, bind their heads to, yes, the to make boarding. it to make it stretch. But the the difference is. The bone structure is completely different in these Exactly. Skulls. The parietals are one bone. It's not right. two like the humans have. Correct. But getting back to uh, what we were talking about, not only were they physically large, but they very likely, I know this is speculation, but they very likely had superhuman powers. Hmm. You know, either some kind of mental ability of some kind, because if we take it back to their origin, they were a a combination hybrid of angelic uh, DNA and human DNA. Mm -hmm. And then compounding that with their, their, uh, you know, apparently if you do any research into crystal skulls, yeah, which is kind of you know getting out there on the fringe, but <laughs> but uh, Indiana the, Jones style. <laughs> yes, you know these crystal skulls that are depicted have as inanimate crystal objects. They have the ability to make people go mad, mm-hmm. and I know that's a movie and all of that. But uh, you know, I, I really think that a lot of this that's done in in Hollywood, you know, maybe playing on uh, some actual you know valid research that has gone on yeah yeah and there's and there's been lots of the, the whole crystal skull thing is is another really uh interesting thing because those crystal skulls that have been discovered the the actual ones like the authentic ones they can't be replicated i mean we can't cut crystal like that it will crack when if you try to cut it the way it was those things are cut and uh it because they're made out of solid crystal cut against the grain I mean, there's just all kinds of of, of weird, um, I guess, unexplained things around that. Um, but you know, these these Amorites. Oh, okay, we've got Amorites. We've got Amalekites. We've got uh, all these ites that were named mm-hmm. that, that God wanted wiped out when you come into the land. Um, there were, if we find out who these Amorites were, well, let's go back to Genesis 10. You can find it. It's right there. Uh, Ham had another son by the name of Canaan. Now, Canaan uh, was cursed by God, right there in the in the same passage that that mentions him. Um, it doesn't really give us a clear understanding why. Um, well, right there in Genesis, uh, end of chapter nine, uh, it talks about uh, after they, of course, came out of the ark and kind of settled. Uh, Noah was a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard there in verse 20 of chapter 9. Mm-hmm. And uh, he became inebriated with uh, the wine that I guess he had... Uh, <laughs> Learned uh, how to grow. <laughs> yeah, fermented from the vineyard. And uh, and uh, his sons did something that is a little bit vague in Scripture, but Shem and Japheth... Uh, when they saw that, of course, Noah was uh, without clothes, they took a garment and laid it on their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And they just you know, they knew that it wasn't proper that, that they witness uh, this scene. Uh, but it says, When Noah awoke, in verse 24, from his wine, 
and knew what his youngest son, now that son doesn't have to mean physical son. It can also be termed and used as grandson. Correct. So it knew what his youngest son had done to him. He said, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Mm. But that is his grandson that he just said that to. Why would he do that? Well, um, and it could be that Canaan was the one responsible, because like you said, we don't really know. Um, but it, it, but he could also be a physical representation of what was left behind in the flood. If, if there is this thing going on, we obviously are seeing this gene is being passed down through Ham. We see that these sons of, of, uh, of Ham are generating... Uh, down the line, giants. So there is some strangeness in his line. If it showed up as early as Canaan, in this could be partly, I mean, once again, we're speculating, but it could be why that son was chosen to be cursed. Okay. Um, but if we, if we continue on, Canaan is actually... Um, they were all given land. They were all told where to go, uh, just like the, the, the nation of Israel was much later. Mm-hmm. They were all given land, and they were all told, you go settle in this land and this land and that, and that land. And some of this comes from the book of Jasher, the details. But um, what actually happened was they went to their land. Noah was the one who basically told them, this is where you need to go. And he kind of divided it all up. Well, when Noah died... Canaan decided he didn't want the land that was given to him. Instead, he went and he took some other land, and he settled there. And his, and his brothers were furious at him. And they were like, what are you doing? You, this isn't your land. This is what, not what you were given. He said, I'm taking it anyway. And mm. that land became known as the land of Canaan. Wow. So what we now know of as Israel uh, was at the time, owned by this corrupt uh, man, Canaan, who was uh, the father of the Amorites. And um, so think about it for a second now. Fast forward in time. you got the children of Israel coming out of Egypt, wandering through the wilderness. They're moving up and down the Jordan River, but they're not crossing over it. They went all the way up to Mount Hermon, and, and fought giants <laughs> at Mount Hermon, okay? But before all that happened, we remember, everyone knows the story of, of, of Numbers um, was it, where, where they were told to scout the land and cross over the River Jordan and see what's over there. And the scouts came back and said, there's giants in the land. <laughs> They're, we're like grasshoppers. In their sight. And it also mentions that the land devoured the people, mm-hmm. doesn't it? Yes. So apparently what it took to sustain these large people or large beings. They were consuming everything. They were consuming everything like grasshoppers would. They devour everything that they come into contact with. Yeah. So, so obviously we know the story that this caused them to suffer more time in the wilderness because... Uh, they were too scared to go confront them, and uh, and and actually, um, 
Numbers 13, uh, verse 33 says, And we saw the Nephilim, this is in the ESV, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so, and so we seemed to them. And so, obviously, they didn't want to go over there. Okay, so it names Anak, the Anakim, the Anakites. These are also in the lineage of the Amorites. So, so these Anakites, these these Emites, were another group that was mentioned. Mm-hmm. They're all descendants of the Amorites, who were descendants of Canaan. So Canaan took his progeny into this land and sired nations of these giants. Mm-hmm. Now it makes a little more sense why God is telling uh, the the nation of Israel, "Look, when you cross over into that land." You're going to have to kill everything. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to kill all the, the, the beasts. You're going to have to kill the, 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 the children, everything. And this wasn't God being mean. It wasn't God being uh, you know, a God that I can't serve because he would kill children. It's a, it's a God trying to rectify a wrong that had happened years ago. Could it be that a perverted genealogy would pervert? His ultimate plan of bringing his son into the world? Very likely. Because? And obviously everything that he's doing with these people in this time is to guide them toward the lineage of Jesus Christ. Because what did he say? He said, if you don't destroy everything that is a part of these people that you're going to marry into this and be conformed into that same ideology. Right. And so that can include the worship aspect, or it can also include the genetic aspect. Well, and just think about it in terms of how inferior would you feel being in a land full of giants? I mean, and they're, and they're saying, you worship our gods. Mm-hmm. And our gods are this creation I've made here that's a half man, half <laughs> whatever. And are you just going to say, nope? Not going to do it. <laughs> right. And, you know, the, the, okay, we'll worship your lion men of Moab or whatever. So, but then, obviously, the Bible sees fit to give us these illustrations of great men of God, great warriors who would stand up against that. And we have David killing giants and David's uh, servants killing giants mm-hmm. and Moses killing giants and and all this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Well, the last thing I wanted to talk about um, was ancient monuments, because I think it ties in a little bit, um, mainly because you were, you, I was thinking about this while you were reading about Og of Bashan and how strong he would have been. There are some things about the ancient world that confuses us, especially in terms of its monoliths. We see things like Stonehenge. We see um, all the the pyramids in uh, South America and in Central America and in Egypt. And we, Easter Island. Yes, Easter Island. Weird things that are out there. And it's like, for one... Baalbek. Yes. Everywhere. We've, we've got weird things that we can't even reproduce now with our current technology. And so we ask these questions. How did that get there? What happened? And... Uh, how in the world were they able to transport? Like, I, I mainly want to look at the at the the 
Pyramid of Giza mm-hmm. because it's so unique amongst all these that it is it is just a fascinating study. But um, one thing is interesting about it is it is made up of um, 2.3 million stones, each of which weigh anywhere between 2 and 30 tons. Okay, so the smallest stone that makes this pyramid is two tons. How do you... And they're made out of laser-precision-cut granite, which isn't even in the Giza Plateau. Mm -mm. Last time I I saw it, I think it was like several hours away that they would have had to have, have carried this stuff. Uh, Across the Nile. Yes, like I think Memphis or something like that was where the closest quarry of this type of stone would be. There's not a boat around that would have held anything. (laughs) It didn't have the buoyancy to lift anything close to that across the Nile. So think about it in terms of, what did you say, Agabashan could could haul a couple of yeah he could lift a horses. couple of 1500 pound horses in each hand and throw them There's with a couple, the rider a couple of tons in each hand mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he's you know or a couple of tons total whatever he he had the ability if there's others like him if you had soldiers of these guys how easy would it have been to just carry these stones and place them where they needed to go It'd be much like us using bricks or because of the now, speculation again, but if they did have super powers beyond just the physical strength aspect, they perhaps had technology that doesn't exist today. Right. That they could, you know, whether it be anti-gravity or whatever it may have been, mm-hmm. you know, they very likely, I mean, there's people that think the Great Pyramid was a was a power generator, mm-hmm. a giant power generator. Right. And, and I mean, who knows? Uh, there is that uh, the Babylon ma- uh, battery. I don't know if you've heard of that. It was an artifact no. that was found in Babylon that uh, oh, I did was too. obviously yes. a power source of some kind. Mm-hmm. We don't know how it worked, mm-hmm. but we could tell that it's it's got copper coils and, and things mm-hmm. like that into it. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's all kinds of technology that could have existed that we don't even know about. Um, but in, in reference to that... Um, there's an interesting statement by Josephus. You know, we mentioned that Josephus is a historian. Mm-hmm. Josephus ascribes the building of the Great Pyramid of Giza to Enoch. Wow. Um, now, we don't read that in the Book of Enoch or Book of Jasher or any of these other texts that might mention it. It's not mentioned. Uh, however, Josephus got it from somewhere. Probably... Probably it was a passed down type of thing from mm-hmm. one generation to the other uh, okay. type of thing because he was a Jew and this he wrote the antiquities of the Jews and mm-hmm. he was interested in their not only their religion but their also their legends and so <clears throat> that would have have come up in there. Um, That's interesting. So anyway, he su- he is suggesting that Enoch built it, which would have put it before the flood, mm-hmm. which is still very viable. Mm-hmm. It would also explain. A lot of things, there almost appears to be a water uh, ring on it uh, that could have been from when this flood was subsiding. Um, well, you look at the uh, Sphinx. Mm-hmm. There's watermarks on the Sphinx right. that indicate that it's much, much older than we've given it credit for, that it's very ancient. Mm. And so the question is, 
why isn't the pyramid mentioned in the Bible? I mean, it mm. would have been there uh, during that time frame. Good question. Well, um, it might be. <laughs> There's, uh, there is a passage in Isaiah 19, um, verse 19, that says, In that day, this is a prophecy of the end times, mm. but... That being said, a lot of times these prophecies of the end times fold into prophecies of current times as well. It says, In that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. Now, that's very confusing. Mm -hmm. uh, so, it, it, let's think about this for a second. In the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. How can something be in the midst of the land and on the border at the same time? Mm -hmm. Well, given Egypt's ge geography, the Giza Plateau is located in the very middle, like not only the middle of Egypt, but the middle of the land mass of the earth. Okay. <laughs> it's the geographical center of the planet. Huh. Like if you were to take all the land mass compared to the water or whatever, mm -hmm. it's the geographical center of of the planet. So uh, right there is it's it's also in the middle of ancient Egypt. It's right at the at the base of the Nile where the Nile splits into the tributaries. Mm -hmm. um, that being said, when the nations have split over time, that's often happened at the Nile River. Okay, so that would put it also at the border of Egypt as well as in the center of Egypt. Okay. So it fits both criteria, at least at some point in time. Either that's future, past, whatever. This mm -hmm. is prophecy, so it could, it could flow into to, to any point. But apparently it's of great significance. Why mention it? Yes, and it does call it the altar to the Lord in the midst of Egypt, a pillar to the Lord. Um, so it could be that it was built by Enoch as a tribute to God of some sort. Now, remember, mm. Enoch had special privileges. He knows what's up in heaven. Mm -hmm. He'd been there. Mm -hmm. And so there's some, oh, some really strange things that we can bring into to all this. Um, I want to look at Revelation 21. Verse 16, this is obviously in the end times uh, when New Jerusalem comes down from, from the heavens and mm -hmm. John sees this. He says, the city lies four square. Its length, the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. Okay, first thing that comes to mind is a cube. But cube is not the only geographical mm -hmm. or... Uh, 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 geometric form that matches this description. Okay, what else could it be? A pyramid. A pyramid is also as high as it is long and wide. Ah. So, um, it could it be that the New Jerusalem is a pyramid shape, um, which would also lend itself to okay. Well, here's Enoch building mm -hmm. something, mm -hmm. having something built by. These large people, because mm -hmm. <laughs> they would have existed in uh, uh, in hordes during the days of Enoch, mm -hmm. um, and whether they were you know 
being forced to do this or whether they were being paid to do it or whatever. But uh, one thing that I've heard a scientist say one time, he said there's n- there is nothing on earth that – I'm trying to remember the exact quote, but there is nothing on earth that could have built it, that it is too perfect in its structure. So what do we mean by that? Well, first off, like we said, the geographical center of the earth, it was placed in just the right spot. Um, the ratio of the cur- cur- circumference of the base, in the ratio from that to the height of it, is exactly 3.141. That's pi. So it's mathematically perfect. Um, it's 13 acres of land total, um, but it's perfectly square. It's only off by a quarter of an inch, which if this thing survived the, the great flood, that alone could have equa- could have given it a quarter of an inch variance. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. But probably at the time of its construction, it was 13 acres square mm-hmm. without being off square at all mm. almost practically impossible for us to build and what something. about its orientation it is oriented uh within three minutes of a degree from our four cardinal directions so there's four sides of the pyramid and they're they're pointing exactly north south east and west only off by three minutes of a degree which once again is something that could have happened during a, a cataclysmic event, mm-hmm. uh, probably at the time of its construction, it was completely perfect to the poles. I mean, just completely square to the poles. Um, there's tons of stuff like this. Uh, the mortar that is used to inside the, the, the pyramid between the bricks, no one knows what it is. It is a chemical compound of some kind, but it's completely unreproducible in our modern technology. Hmm. Um, there is um, one interesting thing of note. It's missing its capstone. Okay. So, you know, a pyramid has, it builds all the way up to, to the top where it has a capstone, which is put right onto the top of it. Um, it's missing that. Now, it could have fallen off or whatever, or it could have never been there. We don't, we don't really know. But if we take this as allegory and start looking into into other things of note. Um, there's another passage of scripture, a, a metaphor that is used for Jesus. In Ephesians 2, it's talking about uh, us being united and that sort of thing. Uh, Ephesians 2, verse 19, it says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, we've always heard this chief cornerstone and the cornerstone being mentioned. Where is the cornerstone in a in, in a in a in a house or in a square structure? Which no, which corner? <laughs> just the a corner, the right. first one they start with, well, I guess. I don't yeah, know. what would be a chief cornerstone? I mean, there's really not one. It like in terms of of structural integrity, there's no chief cornerstone. There are cornerstones in every corner. 
However, but historically, wasn't the chief cornerstone the one they started with? It was the oh. one that every measurement they they laid the first stone oh, okay. of a foundation, and everything was measured out from that. Gotcha. That was where they took. That was known as the chief cornerstone. Okay. I think. Well, that could that could be that as well. But another thing that we might could consider is that the only structure that has a cornerstone that touches every side mm -hmm. is a pyramid. And that chief cornerstone is the capstone. It's the one that's put on top. That's interesting. At, at the very end. Uh, there's also a passage in Romans that tells us that Jesus was a stone of stumbling. So he's referred to as a stone. Again, this time referring to the Jews in chapter 9, uh, that he's a stumbling block for them. Mm -hmm. Okay? When you're building a pyramid, that capstone has no use to you. You can't lay it anywhere else in the structure. It's in the way. It's a stumbling block mm -hmm. until the structure's ready to be completed. And then it's placed on the top. That's good. So there's a lot of things about a pyramid that actually echoes into, uh, metaphorically, mm -hmm. into both our Christian temple and into... Uh, maybe, maybe even New Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. um, it is also interesting to note that every structure in Egypt made by Egyptians is littered with with uh, graffiti of their gods. Right? I mean, mm -hmm. it's everywhere. Mm -hmm. Everywhere you see these these uh, Anubis and Horus and Amet, and you see all of them all over the walls everywhere. The the Great Pyramid at Giza has absolutely none of that. Not a single piece of graffiti on it. Hmm. Which makes me think, maybe it wasn't built for co to, to Khufu the way historians often like to ascribe mm -hmm. it to. Because they ascribe it as to being his, uh, his, his uh, uh, tomb. That, and it never happened for whatever reason, because whenever they finally went into it, they discovered in the king's chamber, as it's called, in the middle of it, that there is a coffer, like a sarcophagus, but there's no body. Well, not only is there no body, there's no lid. And the lid won't even fit through the door. So <laughs> it's not a coffin. It's something else. We don't, know, we don't know what it was made for, but it was not made to be a tomb. And isn't there a channel that leads from the king's chamber to the constellation... Yes, uh, an air, or, an air vent. Orion, yeah. Orion. Yeah, and there's these air vents throughout it uh, that point at at constellations. Orion is being a big one. Uh, the actual the pyramids of Giza are laid out in the exact same place as the belt of Orion. Uh, the belt of Orion isn't a straight line mm -hmm. between the stars. There's a slight alteration on the third uh, star, and there's a slight alteration. And can you imagine the perspective that you would have to have to orient those from the ground in the exact same place geometrically with the constellation Orion and in the that's yeah phenomenal. It's almost unheard of. I mean, well, it is. Un I mean, we can't hardly even get our heads around how this thing was, was built. I even saw this, this one thing that I thought was very interesting because I didn't realize this for years that the four sides of the pyramid are actually concave just a little bit so that there is technically eight sides, two on each side. However, it's so like 
uh, minute. The, the, the shift is so minute that, and so accurate that you can't normally see it except for from above in the sky when the light is just right. Hmm. You can see the shadow of the, 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 the other four sides. Wow. So it is just, oh, man, there's so many things about it that uh, they're interesting and i don't really have a big point to make about it except for that um speculation that giants could have been involved in its construction that enoch could have been involved that it could be a godly structure that it could be built to honor god in some way um and i had never entertained that idea i like that so the enoch was involved so, but anyway, did you have anything else? Because I think I've kind of hit the end of my notes. <laughs> oh, the I, <clears throat> well, at least you have notes. <laughs> Tell you what, it's good to have notes. I uh, I usually speak off the cuff, and um, I think this is going to be something that we will definitely have to come back. And touch because we've we really not we've not got to Nimrod. Yeah. And Nimrod is right there, right after Cush. Yep. As one yep. of his sons. And Nimrod he's a big character. Yes. And not just in stature necessarily. He was quite the guy. Yeah. I think we probably should do a second one and maybe talk more about Nimrod and just maybe focus on him. Because there is, a, like you said, a lot that we can talk about with him, even in reference to, uh, to what we see in today's culture. Mm-hmm. I mean, we see things all over the place that we don't even realize have roots that go back exactly. to, to this guy. And you might, well, there's only two verses mentioned of him in the Bible. Well, yeah, but uh, it gets really deep. <laughs> it does. It does. So, but anyway... Um, the Theonauts are part of the Great Commission Transmission Network, uh, using new media and social networking to go into all the world and to proclaim the good news to everyone. To find out more, to partner with us, visit us at gctnetwork.com. Subscribe to the newsletter there to stay up to date on all the latest of, from our shows, including Finding Christ in Cinema. There are several ways that you can contact us and leave us feedback. Send us email to theonauts at gctnetwork.com. Call us on our voicemail line at 972-885-7270. You can listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or your favorite podcast catcher. And don't forget to leave us comments there and to rate us because that's always what helps people to to find us even more. Tweet to us on Twitter using at Theonautical. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Theonauts. Follow us on Instagram at Theonauts. Don't forget to tune in again and explore the vast reaches of God's word with us. Um, And we will see you here next week. Brooke, thanks for being here, brother. You're welcome. I really appreciate it. God bless. This has been the Theonauts Podcast. Call us with your questions or comments at 972-885-7270. That's 8857270 love to hear from you you are tuned in to the GCT network this is your great commission this is your great commission transmission at gctnetwork.com this is your great commission
Ignition. Transmission.